The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And so, John Fung, they lived together for three days. <laughs> and he was very careful not to startle the snake or do anything to make the snake feel threatened. But at the same time, he always knew there was the possibility that if it got cold at night, the snake might want to come and curl up next to him, and somebody would end up getting hurt, you know, one way or the other. Either he would roll over on the snake or the snake would bite him. So finally, on the third night, he sat and meditated and addressed the snake in his meditation. And he basically said, look, it's not that I have any dislike for you or any aversion to you. It's just that we're a different species, and it would be very easy for misunderstandings to happen. So, so there's plenty of nice places out there in the forest for you to stay. Um, so I think we'd both be happier if you chose another place to stay. <laughs> and then he just sat there and spread thoughts of metta to the snake, and the snake left. Okay. And as he told me the story, it made me rethink the whole concept of metta, um, what it means when, we, when we're spreading thoughts of, you know, thoughts of metta, when we're wishing other people happiness. The question of what kind of heart quality should go along with that. I had many lessons in this myself. Um, I discovered soon after I arrived in Thailand that I was a snake magnet. Cobras would come out and see, you know, what this, what's this Western monk doing here? You know, and I'd, During my walking meditation path, there'd be a cobra lying right along the path. Or I'd be going down to the bathroom and a snake would come right under my feet. And, and John Fung said this was um, abnormal. <laughs> that the snakes came out so much. Uh, and so he taught me a chant, and I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the chant in a minute, for basically getting, spreading goodwill to snakes, but basically saying, please go away, leave me alone, okay? You stay in your space, I'll stay in my space. And in later years, um, I had the job of getting the cobras out of the kitchen. Every now and then a cobra would come into the kitchen to get a kitten or a mouse or a toad or something that was in there, and it felt to me to get the cobra out. And I had to figure out a way that it wouldn't traumatize the cobra and it wouldn't put me in danger. And finally did. But, it, you know, you had to spread thoughts of metta to the cobra as you were doing this. And it seemed to cooperate. I could get it in a pail and then carry it out on a stick and put it in the grass and it would go. So, what is metta for snakes? Would you translate it as loving kindness? I came to develop the idea that it was, more, it was closer to the quality of goodwill. You wish this person happiness, you wish this being happiness, but it's not that you're going to be cherishing and nurturing and sort of there for the snake, you know? <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's not just snakes. There are a lot of difficult people in the world who would respond to your loving kindness either with suspicion, either because you've harmed them or they've been harmed by other people who profess loving kindness, or they would try to take advantage of it, in which case they would end up um, causing, causing bad karma, doing bad things. And so what would actually lead to their happiness? I think the attitude of goodwill is a better way of thinking about this. And you actually look in the texts, in the, in the Pali Canon, and you see that when the Buddha talks about how you express the thought of goodwill, and there are three or four places in the Canon where he actually gives what you might call metta phrases, although he doesn't recommend that you just repeat them over and over in your mind. But when he says, when you try to develop an attitude of metta, this is what you think. The first set of phrases is one that has become common in Theravadan communities across the world. And it goes like this, May these beings, free from animosity, free from oppression, free from trouble, look after themselves with ease. 
Now notice that last phrase. You're not saying that you're going to be there for them or you're going to be there for them to depend on. You want them to have the happiness of independence, the happiness of self-reliance. Years back I heard a Dharma teacher say that he wouldn't want to live in a world where there was no suffering because he wouldn't have the opportunity to express his compassion. Now on the surface that sounds noble, but you think about it a little bit more. You, know, you want to have the joy of expressing your compassion and you need people to suffer in order to have that joy. You know? <laughs> I think a much healthier attitude was, may these beings actually be happy. May they be able to provide for their own happiness, have the happiness of self-reliance, have the happiness of independence. That seems to be a much more generous thought. Another set of metta phrases comes in the Gardaniya Metta Sutta. The first part of the phrase that the Buddha has you think about when you're spreading thoughts of goodwill is pretty unremarkable. Um, Happy at rest, may all beings be happy at heart. Whatever beings there may be, weak or strong, without exception. Long, large, long, of course, is snakes. Uh, large, middling, short, subtle, blatant, seen and unseen, near and far, born and seeking birth. May all be beings be happy at heart. That's a pretty standard wish for happiness for everybody, without exception. Then he goes on to say this. He says, Let no one deceive another or despise anyone anywhere, or through anger or resistance wish for another to suffer. Now that's just not saying may they be happy, but may they also understand what the causes for happiness are and what the causes for unhappiness are and avoid the causes for unhappiness, both for themselves and for others. So you're taking into consideration, you, know, you realize that your thoughts of metta are not a magic wand that you can touch people on the head and say may you be happy. You're basically wishing may these people understand what's skillful and what's not and may they avoid unskillful behavior. So you're taking into consideration the teaching on karma. That if anybody's going to find happiness, or anybody's going to find true happiness, it's going to have to be through their own actions, through not harming other beings, through not holding ill will or um, looking down on other beings. This connects to the fact that if any of us want to try and find true happiness, we all have to understand that the cause, one of the things is we cannot harm other beings if we're looking for happiness, if your happiness is going to be true. If your happiness depends on the suffering of others, it's not going to be true happiness, and that's for two reasons. One is, if they have a chance to get back at you, they will. You know? they, don't, they don't want to see your suffering last. If they can get back at you, they will. Another, and the other, of course, is that if you see somebody else suffering because of you, part of your heart, if you have any sensitivity at all, doesn't feel right. You want to do something to end that oppression to the others. So when you're expressing goodwill, you're not saying okay, that you're going to be there for them, for them all the time. You're actually hoping people will be there for themselves. They'll know what to do, what's skillful, what's not skillful, and how to avoid unskillful behavior and work on skillful behavior. Okay. And then the same sutta goes on to say this, that when you're developing this attitude, you want to protect it in the same way that a mother would protect her child. You may have heard this verse, as a mother would risk her life to protect her child, her only child, even so should one cultivate a limitless heart with regard to all beings. Now some people misunderstand that. They think that the Buddha is saying you have to cherish other beings the same way that you would cherish your only child. What he's actually saying is you have to cherish your attitude of goodwill in the same way that a mother would cherish her only child. I mean, any of you who have been a mother, you know what it's like. You know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., the kid get col- gets colicky. You have to be up there for it. You have to look after it all the time. You've got part of your nervous system plugged into that kid for quite a long time. 
because you know that any little thing happens to the kid that's going to be dangerous. So you have to be there pretty much 24-7. In the same way, the Buddha is saying that you have to be there 24-7 with your attitude of goodwill. You don't want that attitude to lapse. That's what you have to cherish. That's what you have to look after. And this is because one of the main reasons we're doing this practice is because we're trying to make sure that our motivation is always in line with our desire to put an end to suffering. And the Buddha explicitly recommends that there are two times when our motivation tends to waver most quickly, that we have to work especially on thoughts of loving-kindness. The first is if somebody's harming you. You may have heard the story of Lady Vedehika. She was well known for being very kind and gentle and, and meek and forgiving. And she had a servant whose name was Gali. And Gali you know, was, was a very good servant. She was neat in her work. She was, you know, she'd get up before Lady Vedehika in the morning, go, go to bed after, after Lady Vedehika went to bed. Did all her work very neatly. Was a very good servant. And so the thought crossed her mind, well, is, is she so gentle because I'm a good servant? Or is she, just, is she really gentle inside, or is it just because my work is good? And she decided to test her, which may not have been the wisest thing, but she decided to test her later Vedehika. So one morning she gets up late, and Lady Vedehika says, hey, why did you get up late? She said, no reason. Just wanted to get up late. And, she, and Lady Vedehika scowled. And then the next day, she gets up even later. And they, hey, Kali, where are you? Here? Did you get up late again? Yes. Why? No reason. <laughs> Lady Vedehika said some nasty words. The third day, she gets up even later. Lady Vedehika says, hey, where are you? I'm right here. Did you get up late again? Yes. He hits her over her head with a rolling pin. <laughs> and so then the servant goes out in the street with her, with her head broke open with a rolling pin and says, see the, the work of the gentle one, see the work of the, of the restrained one? How can she, just because I get up late, hit me over the head with a rolling pin? So then the lady way day gets the reputation for being cruel and nasty and harsh. And the Buddha is saying it's very easy when people are nice to you to think thoughts of goodwill to them. Now, there's no real test. The real test is when you can maintain those thoughts of goodwill even when they're harming you. And he goes even to the say, if someone were to be carving you up with a two-handled saw, he says, you, your mind, you said, you should tell yourself, our minds will remain unaffected and we will say no evil words. <laughs> we will remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill and with no inner hate. We will keep pervading these people with an awareness imbued with goodwill, and beginning with them, we will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill. Abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. And you may say, okay, the Buddha can say that. Well, there was the case where Devadatta tried to kill the Buddha, and the Buddha ended up with a stone sliver in his foot. So they pull out the stone sliver and he has to lie down. Mara comes to taunt him, and he says, I thought you were a Buddha. Why are you lying down like this? Why aren't you up and around? And the Buddha says, well, I've got a wound. And, and, and Mara says, are you moping about this? Are you upset because someone tried to kill you? And the Buddha says, no, I'm, I'm lying down here pervading the whole world with thoughts of sympathy. That's how he, that's how he treats the situation. So that's one of the places where the Buddha says you have to be especially careful to spread thoughts of goodwill is when you're being harmed. You want to make sure that your activity is not going to do, cause any harm in response. The second time when it's also hard to spread thoughts of goodwill is when you know you've harmed somebody. You don't like to think about that person. And, and it's very easy to think, well, they deserved it, or you know, it doesn't really matter that, they, that what I did. 
But he says, you really have to remind yourself that, yes, it was you know, a mistake that you made. You did harm the person. Don't get tied up in remorse, because that's not going to help anything. Just resolve that you're not going to repeat the mistake, and then spread thoughts of goodwill to everybody, including that person and yourself. Because those are two people at that point where it's very hard to feel goodwill for. And you might do some self-harmful self, self behavior, or you might decide that you're going to lash back at that person because they made you feel bad or whatever. In either case, the Buddha says you've got to really work hard on developing thoughts of goodwill. This accomplishes several things. One, it reminds you of your own goodness, okay, that you have some goodness in you. Because if you think, well, I'm just a horrible person, that just puts you in a, a tailspin. And then it strengthens your resolve that you're not going to repeat that mistake. If you really do have goodwill for all beings, you're not going to harm them. So that keeps, keeps you on in line. Finally, there is that passage I said that the Buddha taught, excuse me, that John Furing taught me when the snakes were coming out to see me. Um, and this is a chant that the Buddha taught to the monks. It's one of the few protective chants in the entire Pali Canon. There was a snake, who, excuse me, there was a monk who was bitten by a snake in the forest and died. So the monks go to report this to the Buddha, and the Buddha says, well, it's obviously that he didn't pervade the four great families of snakes with goodwill. And the four great families of snakes are the Rurubakas and the Gandha Gorumakehi Cha. It starts out this Rurubakehi me metang, I have meta for the Rurubakas. Metang erabatehi me, I have goodwill for the erabatas. Now I'm getting tongue tied. Um, anyway, there are four great families of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes on. I have goodwill for footless beings, goodwill for two-footed beings, goodwill for four-footed beings, goodwill for many-footed beings. Okay? These are the kinds of beings you meet out in the forest. Okay? And he says, may footless beings do me no harm, may two-footed beings do me no harm, may four-footed beings do me no harm, may many-footed beings do me no harm. May all creatures, all breathing things, all beings, each and every one, meet with good fortune. May none of them come to any evil. Okay. Then it goes on. Limitless is the Buddha, limitless is the Dharma, limitless is the Sangha. There is a limit to creeping things. <laughs> Snakes, scorpions, centipedes, spiders, lizards, and rats. I have made this safeguard, I have made this protection. May the beings depart. I.e., okay, no ill will, but please go away. Okay. <laughs> The phrase about being limitless, the Buddha being limitless, this gets back to an earlier point I missed. When the Buddha is talking about pervading the world, the whole world when you're being attacked by bandits with a two-handled saw, he says you try to make your mind as large as the river Ganges or as large as the earth. In other words, your mind is larger than the harm those people are doing to you. You want to maintain that attitude. Here, we're talking about the power of the Buddha and the Dharma Sangha. It's limitless. There is a limit to snakes and scorpions and other creeping things. But then again, in the realization that many of us are a lot happier living apart rather than living together. And so for some people, for some beings, happiness, that's what you wish them. Okay? Maybe we have, may we be happy living separately, going our own separate ways. This is giving respect to their, a lot of their feelings. They may be suspicious about you, either specific things you may have done in the past, suspicious about other, other people in general. And of course, there are all those beings out there that don't like human beings. They would rather just you know, be left alone. So you have to think about that too. So all of these passages that the Buddha teaches for expressing goodwill have this element of respect in the other being and trying to basically not saying that you're going to be there for the other being necessarily, but basically you wish the person well, no ill will, I don't want to harm you, 
please don't harm me. This way we'll both live in peace and happiness. That's not so much loving kindness as it is goodwill and attitude, okay? I want you to be happy, but okay, if we have to live separately and it'd be better for us to live separately, that'd be fine. There's another number of advantages to seeing metta in this way. The first is you're not feeling hypocritical. You know, someone's beating up your child and you're saying things of loving kindness for the person beating up your child. It just doesn't happen. But you say, okay, I don't want that person to be causing any more harm. You do what you can to stop him from beating your child. But you do it in such a way that you're not going to cause him, him any harm either. Secondly, as I said, there are people who might take advantage of your loving kindness. They would start acting in unskillful ways, and so that would not actually be conducive to their happiness. Whereas the attitude of goodwill is something that lays lightly on, on the mind, lays lightly on the heart. It feels good no matter what. I mean, there are times when goodwill will be expressed as loving kindness. People who are close to you, people who really do need your help, this is where goodwill turns into compassion. You do want to be there for them if you can offer that help. But it's good to realize that it all comes from basically an attitude of goodwill, not wishing to cause any harm, wishing for all beings to have the opportunity to be happy. We do come down to the fact again that in this world it's impossible for everybody to live in a harmless way. And the fact that we have to feed on each other emotionally and the fact that there are animals out there who will not survive if they couldn't get some good meat every day. What was that onion um, ad they had for the Onion magazine? Little kitten thinks of nothing but murder all day long. I mean, <laughs> that's what most animals are thinking. Where's where's my next piece of flesh? Um, I mean, this is a good argument against you know the idea that there's a compassionate, intelligent design working out there. Um, the fact that you know life has to depend on feeding like this. I mean, you can imagine all kinds of other ways in which we might be able to survive without having to feed on one another. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the book Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut. If you haven't, I'd, I'd recommend it as a great drama read. Um, one of the incidents in the book, these two, two characters get to the planet of Mercury, and it turns out that Mercury is a solid crystal, but it's honeycombed. And this was written back in the time when they thought that the fi- Mercury kept one face to the sun. And so in this, in this book, one side of Mercury is really hot and the other side is really cold, and because there, there's this huge temperature difference, the whole crystal is humming the whole time. And there are these little beings called harmoniums. They look like little kites with suction cups on each corner. And all they have to do is put one of their suction cups onto the crystal and they feed off the vibrations. Here's a world where nobody feeds on anybody else. And so what do they do? They have two messages that they send telepathically to everybody else. One is, here I am, here I am, here I am, and the other is, so glad you are, so glad you are, so glad you are. (laughs) That's very different from our world, okay? (laughs) Just The Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut. So when wishing for good, wishing for happiness, basically we're we're remembering that true happiness for everybody in this world is not going to be possible. But you want to make sure that your actions are motivated by goodwill. That's why we're doing this. And if you really do want for the happiness of other beings, you have to be sensitive about how they're going to react to your wish for their happiness. If you come on all loving and kind, it may scare them, as I said, said, or they may react in other unskillful ways to take advantage of you. So you take into consideration what would really make that being happy. In some cases, it's that we leave each other alone. So you have to use your discernment here to see it's not so much your 
wanting to feel goodwill because it just feels good to feel goodwill. You really do want to take that person's or that other being's happiness into consideration. What behavior on my part would help that person or that being behave in a skillful way and be really happy? So this is why I would recommend that we take the word loving-kindness and retire it for a while and um, talk about metta in terms of goodwill. Any questions or comments? Other ideas? Yes. Okay, when somebody has done you harm, mm-hmm. and then your response is not to do harm back, mm-hmm. but what if justice is such that that you know they they need to be incarcerated or, or, or okay try to find a place where they're incarcerated where they're not just thrown away yeah okay because okay. I mean we're not saying that we're not going to fight for our rights at all uh-huh. um, my teacher had a student one time who was a seamstress and you know she would make clothing for sale and people knew that she was a meditator and they come in and said why are you charging so much for your clothes you're a person who hangs around the monastery. You should, you know, you should live a nice, simple life and don't take, make too much money. You know? um, and so she didn't know what to say. So she went to see my teacher, and he said, next time you tell her, okay, I'm practicing the Dharma not to be stupid. <laughs> so when, when you want to do justice, but again, if, if you have the choice, if you have to fight somebody off, and this is actually written into the monk's rules, um, ordinarily, we're not allowed to make threatening gestures to others. But if someone attacks us, we are permitted to hit back in self-defense, but not to kill. There's a caveat. With loving kindness, with, with goodwill. Yeah. Not necessarily. Because, <laughs> again, you do want to stop that person from you know, continuing <coughs> the unskillful behavior of hitting a monk. But, um, or from hitting you or hitting your child or whatever. You do want to stop that. But you say, okay, I don't, want to ki- I don't want to kill that person. I don't want to cause that person any unnecessary harm. Now, it might be good for someone like that to be you know, you know, taken to the law and let the law take care of it. But you're not out there just saying, okay, he, you know, he hurt me. I've got the right to shoot back. You don't want to have that attitude. How about the Shaolin monks who are trained in self-defense and have come out with these incredible moves mm-hmm. uh, to punish intruders and even become offensive-minded? Well, that's, I'm not a Shaolin monk. And so as a, you know, in the Theravada tradition, we're trained basically, again, in just the minimum amount of self-defense. Because it does get, you do start getting carried away. Sort of with the skill of you know knowing where the jugular is and knowing where these other things, you start thinking more and more and more in those terms, which is not a healthy attitude to have. Although I must admit the Shaolin monks have done one service, and I knew a group of Thai monks who were in a very dangerous neighborhood in New York City one time, and they saw a gang coming down the street at them, and they were afraid of the gang, and so they took a Shaolin-style move like this. 
And the gang backed off. <laughs> Even though the Thai monks were totally un, you know, untrained in that. <laughs> yes. Does it hand back there? I have a family situation in which I must now very suddenly deal legally and emotionally with a very difficult person in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to the um, how to respond to my sister with metta, goodwill, um, with like zero training and lots of history? Mm-hmm. To the contrary. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you, you, if she's that close to you in the family, you must have some notion of what, what she responds to and what she doesn't. And try to get to her in some way that you can think, at least minimize the amount of harm she's going to do and minimize the amount of harm you're going to do. You want to keep both sides of those things into the equation. And that's, I think that's the best attitude to bring into that. Because again, you're not just saying, well, may you be happy, may you be happy. But it, it, is, it is good to think that. Because you'll be coming, you'll be radiating a different kind of energy than if you come in with this punitive attitude. And she can sense, she'll be able to sense that if she has any sensitivity at all. At the same time, you want to think through the situation beforehand to make sure that she, you're not leaving any openings for her to behave in an especially unskillful way. It's, it requires thinking strategically. Just a Have you ever read any Miss Manners? Have you ever read any Miss Manners? She's really good on this kind of stuff. She's not just forks and knives, you know. <laughs> you know how to deal strategically with really different, difficult situations. She's very good. Yes? What about when you're in the situation where you're observing someone doing harm to themselves? Mm-hmm. I'm struggling right now with that kind of a situation, and I'm one of those people who rushes in and fixes things. Mm-hmm. And I haven't rushed in, and I've seen this person now doing harm to herself for months on end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, suicidal thoughts, even. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, um, a great withdrawal, a belief that um, she will go to great lengths to avoid pain, um, even to cutting off all happiness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where's, I mean, I'm sitting there with goodwill and loving kindness and I'm getting nowhere and she's getting worse mm-hmm. and we're very close. Mm-hmm. Where's the approach here? Okay, you just have to think about what, again, what, what can you do that will get, it, get through to her, that will help her? Um, where there is that realization that there's always a part of someone else that you cannot reach. And for that you have to develop thoughts of equanimity. When you think of the Brahma Viharas, you know, you've got goodwill, there's compassion, empathetic joy. Compassion is when you see the suffering and you try to help alleviate the suffering. Um, you know, teach how to do breath meditation. <laughs> and never do it the kind of breath meditation where it really is comforting inside, whether the breath feels good inside. Um, Where's a resource for that? I'm not a monk. You okay. know what I mean? No, um, there's, a, there's a website, Access to Insight. Dot org access to insight and there's a there's a guided meditation by me on there there's a, a book keeping the breath in mind method two by John Lee and both of those emphasize you know developing thoughts of ease and well-being inside by the way you breathe maybe that'll help I don't know give her Thank something you. give her something to hold on to.
thank you. Yes, in the back. Hi. Um, There's this guy at work that's really hard to work with. (laughs) He really, really bugs me. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure that talking to him at all would would help. Mm -hmm. Doing the uh, loving-kindness meditation is definitely things that I have done, and it helps me to open up to... Uh, parts of him that need to be loved Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I think maybe creeping in with that is sometimes an agenda that I also want to change him just because I'm being so loving kindness and so your Uh your thoughts on uh, goodwill and Mm -hmm. just leaving it at that and letting him be Mm -hmm. uh, I just have gratitude to you for saying that well it's also I mean having an agenda to help that person behave in a more skillful way is actually an okay agenda whether it's going to be successful or not, that's another matter. But it's perfectly okay to have that agenda. But if it's not working, you say, okay, that's just beyond me. Goodwill for the guy. And then just you know, put yourself in a situation where he can do you as little damage as possible and as little damage to the other people around you as possible. Yeah, it just leaves me at peace when I can just leave him with mm-hmm. goodwill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Over here. I'm sorry, the site access to access to insight <laughs> dot org. <laughs> it's not com. <laughs> Someone said there are two types of people in the world, the dot com people and the dot org people. Any other questions on any other topic? <laughs> it's not that all, all, all that often that I get up here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, going back. So, if somebody does harm to one, mm-hmm. and and. You know, feelings of of, of anger come mm-hmm. up, and and perhaps I'm not acting on that anger, mm-hmm. but I'm stopping and looking at it, and and loving kindness does not arise yeah, at that. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. then and then I start beating myself up for you know I should be feeling loving kindness well, towards this person. Well, fortunately, the Buddha has has a couple other alternative ways of dealing with anger, and when it, the anger feels really raw like that. He says, think about the fact that if you'd acted on the anger, you would do really stupid things. You would, one, you'd look ugly. Two, you would probably destroy your reputation. You might destroy some of your property. Um, You can't think straight. Sometimes you think you're doing something that's going to help you and it's actually going to harm you. Your enemy, seeing that, would be pleased. Now, would you like to please that bastard? This is for when Meta doesn't cut it, you know. <laughs> the Buddha doesn't quite use the word bastard, but he's, you know. He's <laughs> the general thrust is in that direction.
Okay. Um, I'm somewhat new to um, meditation and um, Buddhist practice, and um, I um, I'm actually from New York. Um, I uh, Dharma punks, Josh Corda, um, which is how I heard of you. Um, and I was just actually just curious. I mean, I, I've been attending obviously these these sessions, and I was just wondering is is there any type of I don't even know how to phrase it, um, like uh, one-on-one or a mentoring thing when you're not going to become anything more than a practicing layman. What do you um, mean, anything more? That's pretty good right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to become a nun. Yeah, okay. Uh-huh. You know, but uh-huh. um, there are times that I understand that, you know, it, it's very much about sort of self-service here. You know, mm-hmm. you get as much information and process it and make your own decisions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um and attend as many you know, and as many meditations as you can, and um, meditate, you know, on your mm-hmm. own. But there are some times where it just feels like you you'd know, like some one-on-one. We'll talk to Gil over here. He's the he's the, the head honcho Does that actually exist in this hall? Yeah. Yes, it does. I, I'm told it does. Right? Interviews, the interviews with people. Yes, they do. Do inter- one-on-one interviews. Yeah, that's that's what it's yeah. called. It's mm-hmm. called interviews. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and would that be the same term you would use anywhere, only because I'm not right, going to be here for right, very yeah, long? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll be back in New York fairly soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. General question about practice. Mm-hmm. In uh, practicing, one is mindful of the body mm-hmm. and mindful of the sensations. Mm-hmm. And if during that practice one continually finds very unpleasant sensations arising, mm-hmm. uh, for example, anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, which is, doesn't seem to be attached to any specific thing, mm-hmm. and it arises continually, mm-hmm. um, could you give some suggestions for dealing with those kinds of things? First thing I would do is start looking back at how the breath is going in the body. Where is it tight? Where is it tense? And then relaxing it. And trying to find a spot in the body where you feel at ease and you feel comfortable. And focus your main attention there. And get used to being there. And let the anxiety stay off to one side. You're not going to attack it quite yet. You, what you need is a foundation inside. Once you've got the foundation inside, where you feel, this is a place where I can stay and I have my own safe spot here. Then you can start looking into the thoughts. What, what thoughts trigger the, the anxiety? And you say it, may, it seems free-floating, but the anxiety will come and it will go. It's not a, a constant stream. It has its ups and downs. And so you want to look for the ups and downs. When, it, when it's a sudden up, what did you just think? What thought just went through your mind? When there's a down, okay, what did you just let go of? That's what you want to look for. And this is one of the reasons why we look for inconstancy. It's not just to say, oh, everything is inconstant, that's it. But when, when something is, changes, why did it change? You're looking for cause and effect. But it is important that you have that sense of a safe space inside to do this with, because otherwise you, you can, it's very easy to get overwhelmed. So I'd work on that first. And you may know, you know, that especially if it's anxiety, it may be someplace in the chest or around in the solar plexus or down in the stomach. Try to keep that as relaxed and breathe as deeply into that part of your body as you can. 
And that helps to weaken the hold of the anxiety on the mind. Because part of your mind says, well, it's obviously that I'm really feeling this deep anxiety because I can feel it in my body as well. Well, you can kind of loosen it up from the body a bit. You know, reclaim the body as yours. And then look at the anx- whatever anxiety is left. There's a question here. Did you have a question? I was just wondering about helping our uh, children, you know, mm-hmm. and supporting them. And when is it uh, not good for them to keep supporting them? Uh, um, you know, you're talking about age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, she's almost forty. Was raised that we're all, you know, we're one. Right, so your your family, it's all family. Yeah. But then mm-hmm. how do you know? When, you know, it's not good for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. When do you just say, you know, that's that's enough? Well, I'd say she's almost forty now. It's about time to say it's enough. You know? <laughs> well, it's difficult. Yeah, I know it's very difficult. Yeah. I mean, you're her mother, right? <laughs> but what you do? well, you, what you do is sort of, I would say, sort of hand out the message in, in stages, saying, I really like, you know, give her kind of a deadline. I really would like you to find a place or a job or whatever she's lacking right now. Give her, say, six months or whatever. So it's not just a sudden, hey, tomorrow you've got to leave. Um, <laughs> and then say, okay, in the meantime, I'm be happy to really give you this much support, but, you know, I've got my limitations. And didn't you train her in gratitude when she was younger? <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, if you, ha- you have to remind yourself, it's for her own good that she's got to learn how to be more self-reliant. So it's not an act of cruelty. As you say, it's time that she learns some to learn how to stand on her own two feet. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It's for her. It's for her. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I got a question. Yeah. One more. Um, any public suggestions for us as we launch with our new retreat center? The new retreat center? Oh my gosh. Um, you're so fast, you, maybe this is too long a question. <laughs> <laughs> um, for blessings, whatever. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, every endeavor is going to involve a lot of disagreement. People have different views about how the retreat should look, everything from the letterhead on up, you know. Um, and so you've got to say, okay, be willing to live with you know, diverse opinions, and keep in mind the fact that this is basically to create a place where people can have the right atmosphere and the right physical surroundings to help their practice. That's uppermost in mind. And it's, as with any project, you've got to decide what's really important and you're going to be willing to sacrifice some of your personal opinions in order to maintain what's important. I don't know if I told you this story. Um, I'll try to keep this short. A friend of mine as, as an author, and she lived in China for a while, so she's written a lot of novels placed in China. And one of them um, is about this young woman in Manchu, China. 
sitting at the Qing Dynasty. Um, her mother dies. Her father, at first, swears he's not going to get remarried, and then he dies to a courtesan from down south. Well, the courtesan is actually a smart woman, and so she's trying to train the young woman. And one day they're playing a game of chess, and she's telling her daughter, "You have to, in order to be truly happy in life, you have to decide there is one thing you want more than anything else." And you're willing to sacrifice everything else for that one thing. And of course, the daughter is half listening and half not listening to what her stepmother is saying. But she's beginning to notice that the stepmother is playing chess very sloppily. She's losing pieces here and losing pieces there. And so the daughter gets starts getting more aggressive. And so she plays a really aggressive game, and it's a trap. The stepmother has caught her. Checkmate. Of course, the way she played chess illustrates the point she was trying to make. You're willing to sacrifice some pieces in order to win the game. Um, my friend, being a professor at a university, every time she publishes a novel, would go around to alumni clubs and read parts of the novel. And so she would have to choose in each novel a section that was sort of a self-contained little thing you could read in 20 minutes and it would make sense. And so this story fit the criteria. So she went to three of these meetings, read the story, decided she had to change which story she was going to read because nobody wanted to hear the message. Everyone wants to win and keep all their pawns. <laughs> so you realize, okay, you've got to keep in mind, okay, what is the main purpose of having this place? And be willing to sacrifice other things in order to get that. As long as you have a common vision, it'll work. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm.